Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Informed Catholic Podcast. My name is Ned Jabbar, so let's pray the Apostles' Creed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he arose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Holy Mother of God, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Holy Michael the Archangel, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm going to read to you a passage from St. Matthew, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And I would like to read another one. It starts from verse four, uh, 15. It's the same chapter 7, 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, who inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? So every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their fruits. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I think um, this these passages pretty much um, lays down the code uh, for what it, what it means to be a Christian. And to me, what stands out quite um, very straight out of your face, what comes right out to your face is the part here that that the narrow that the way is hard to heaven. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And it doesn't sound like once saved is always saved, like you hear from some evangelical Christians. I mean it's interesting that Sorry, the window's open, so you're going to hear a plane flying over, but I'm not going to close it. Um, it stands out. I mean, the first part, I should have read the first part again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, we are called to live and walk the straight and narrow way, which you've heard many times. It is not one saved is always saved. God is not naive that he's going to make it that easy for you. And he's going to, I mean, it, you know, it's, it just sounds, it sounds like a spoiled rich boy, rich kids way of thinking. My daddy owns everything so I can do whatever I want. And, you know, because I'm daddy's special child. It sounds like a spoiled kid's way of thinking. Once saved is always saved. And therefore, you know, you could never lose your salvation. Well, why does he say this then? Why does Christ point this out to us? Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And, as, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It doesn't sound like it's fun being a Christian. It doesn't sound easy peasy lemon squeezy. It doesn't sound like it's uh, all honey from there. You know, why... But I mean, it doesn't look like a one-way ticket. It sounds like being a Christian takes a lot of hard work. And Christ often says in other areas, he who wishes to be my disciple must pick up his cross and follow me. Here's a passage from Matthew chapter 16. Um, here, let's start from verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is, is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
doesn't sound like uh, once saved is always saved. It sounds like it's hard work. Must pick up his cross and follow me. I don't think anyone wants that. No one wants to suffer, but that's what it sounds like. It sounds like we have to become like him. And how do we do it? I don't think he expects us to actually go somewhere and get nailed to the cross, but I think much of it means to bear and to endure all the hardships of life that come our way. It, there's an old Catholic prayer offered up to Jesus, offered up to the cross. You unite yourself with him. I mean, Paul himself does use, does say in a passage that, you know, he has the marks of Christ on his body. So it is a constant conversion in life. You have to, con you have to constantly be converted, be united with him and be called to be like him, to be transformed like him inwardly, you know, to endure, to, um, to give, to pray, and to be asked constantly to be transformed. I believe that is the, the whole key to it. Once saved is always saved. Sounds like afterward you're just not going to do any work. You're just going to be a rich kid, a spoiled rich person's child who has nothing to fear because daddy will always pay for it. You can crash your car a thousand times and daddy will always pay for it because the, daddy has the money to uh, to cover the insurance and to pay people off. It doesn't, it, once paid as, you know, once saved is always saved is unrealistic. It doesn't say that in there. You know, it doesn't say that at all. Um, what other passage can we look here that uh, will tell us more about this? Well, here's something. Chapter 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin would be better for him to have a great milestone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Right, that, that's, an, that's a great one we just came by. I wonder if any of those uh, molesters ever came across this passage. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye, then with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. It's interesting we came across this because the church fathers say what he means by to pluck it out. If something keeps attracting you, 
uh, the church fathers have said, if something keeps attracting you, keeps grabbing your attention, then find a way to avoid it. There's a story about a man who he talks to his priest and he tells his priest that on his way home, unfortunately, there is a strip joint and it keeps, you know, causing him. Well, let me go a little further back. He's constantly having money problems and he tells his priestess and the priest says to him, well, you make a lot of money. You're a manager. Why should you have money problems? And he's telling him this in confession. And the man says, well, father, I'm ashamed to admit to something. Well, go ahead. Tell me. You see, on my way home to wor uh, from work, there's a strip joint. And I'm sorry to say I've stopped at the strip joint. And that's where all my money goes. And the priest, of course, the man is a husband. He's got five kids. And his marriage is actually suffering from this because he spends his money there. And of course, who knows? Maybe the wife already knows where he goes. So the priest says, so um, don't stop there. Just keep driving by. He said, I tried that many times, Father, but it just keeps grabbing my attention and I can't help it. So he's attracted to pornography. So the priest said, so what can you do? Well, is there, you know, is there another way for you to drive around? Well, if I do, it's going to cost me two hours. Then put in the two hours driving home. Better two hours than your money being wasted away and destroying your family and your uh, your marriage. You know, and you're going to have to start praying because one way or another, a temptation is going to come at you another way. You're probably going to waste your time going on the internet or something. You have to start praying. You have to start making prayer part of your life. It's not going to be easy, but you're addicted to pornography. And this is going to destroy your marriage. You're going to find yourself in a worse situation. So the priest decided that he's going to call him every day after work to make sure he gets home and does not stop at the strip joint. It took a long time, but the money problem slowly eased up. But the priest you know, the priest would constantly be on top of him. And that's the kind of thing you need to look for. But if your eye, your right eye bothers you, then pluck it out and throw it into the fire. If your right hand bothers you, then cut it off and throw it into fire. Better that you go to life blind and maimed than to go into hell fire. And this may basically means to be constantly on guard. He has to find a way to fight this temptation. And, if, and like Jesus said, whoever, um, woe to the world for temptation, for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptation comes. And if your right hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it from you. 
It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to the to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's whatever causes you that subtle little temptation that you're trying to ignore or you're keeping a secret. That is what the purpose means, the right hand or eye. You know, you're staring at another woman and your wife is there. She catches your attention or the man catches your attention or anything catches your attention. And it becomes sort of like a whisper or a little worm just eating its way through. That's the whole point of it. So you see, it's a constant battle. And the church fathers tell us that it's constant battle of prayer. And sometimes these things cost a lot of sacrifice. With some, some, are, some would mean uh, fasting. But anything, do anything you have to do to avoid this particular addiction or sin that could lead to self-destruction. That's the whole purpose of it. And so it's not once saved, always saved. It's a constant struggle. So I think I'm going to po point out Christian life is a struggle. I'm going to name that to this, to this episode. Um, so um, we'll get back the next episode to the pocket catechism. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's one of those things. I mean, I know that a lot of us uh, have a hard time making it to church because we have a job. And, uh, some of you know, this also about me that I work on Sundays. So it's always a struggle to try to make it to mass, um, especially living in New York City with the subway tr uh, system the way it is. It adds another 12 hours to your day. And sometimes I know this because when I'm at Mass, I um, I almost fall asleep and I don't even remember what the, um, you know, what the service was all about or what the reading is. So I have to remind myself about this. So uh, it's a sad fact, but we all have to try to you know, to struggle with this. And it's one of the crosses we have to bear. And it's a struggle for, uh, you know, to, for Catholics, because unfortunately, a lot of places, they, uh, they limit the mass time. You know, and it's one of the things we, um, we as Catholics is that we need the Eucharist. We need the body and blood soul divinity of Christ also to help us. And a lot of Christian tradition, especially evangelicals and Protestants, they don't really, they believe it's just a symbol, an empty symbol that basically, um, and unfortunately when you treat it as an empty symbol, it's really, I hate to say it, but why? If you believe Jesus Christ is God and you believe he was conceived and born of a virgin, then why would you um, reduce his body and blood to just a mere symbol? Why can't it be 
as equally glorious as that of him being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It doesn't make any sense. If he said that this is my body and this is my blood, then why can't it be true? Why is it impossible? I mean, if he says it in John chapter 6, so let's read um, John chapter 6 from verse 22, the bread from heaven. On the next day, the people who remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. However, boats from Tiberias came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, seek me, uh, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which is the Son of Man will give to you. For on him has God the Father set the seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raised, raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up again on the last day. The Jews then mumbled at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is, this, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not mummer among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him.
and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Every one who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except me who is from God. I'm sorry. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except him who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then he goes on. I'll try to skip this little part here, but I'll read this part. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and did. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So there you have it. You have to take part of this. It is a cultish ritual, but it is believed. I mean, think about it. He didn't say, take a finger, take a hand, take a piece of my thigh. No. He was, he said, he was comparing himself to the manna that they ate in the wilderness when they were leaving, when they left Egypt. Every morning they got up during the weekdays, they would find this soft, flaky, powdery stuff, almost like snow. And they called it manna, which actually is means, what is this? And it became the word for bread, for the bread. Uh, actually, they have another word for bread, but it became meaning bread from heaven. They didn't know what it was, but that's what it meant. And he was comparing himself because it was getting close to the Passover. This is just one year before his crucifixion. Some might say it could have been six months, but this is the part where he really was nailing it really hard for them. He was really showing them that this is his teaching, that he is the bread, that his body which he is offered as a sacrifice and also his body was to be real supernatural food. Now, of course, remember, he died and he rose again. But the night before he was betrayed, the theologians believe that in order for this to really be part of the church's identity, 
to be that to be a special um mark on the priesthood he gave his body and blood that very evening so the apostles the disciples ate it ate this bread his priests peter and the others took part in the manner there might have been other people there as well and then that evening which is going to be the evening he was going to be betrayed remember judas was already told to leave jesus told him what you were about to do do quickly Judas couldn't take part in it, but Jesus did something that was very interesting. He gave him a little piece of morsel, a little tiny piece of bread that was dipped in the bitter uh, herbs, and he put it in his mouth. And it says at that moment, the devil entered him. Now, of course, Judas was already plotting this. And then he went to the high priest's house and said, which he went a couple of days earlier, or the evening before, what will you give me if I hand them over to you? Of course, the deal was made. But the point of this is, is that he could not be there. He he took a, a bread of condemnation. He himself basically ate it, and it was a sign maybe of, of being condemned. It was a tender sign, but also it became sort of like a very bitter sign. Jesus gave him every opportunity to understand every opportunity to convert and Judas threw it away. Now, he goes into the garden. He takes his mystical body with him, his disciples. His, the three days in the tomb has already begun. The garden was the beginning of his woes, of his beginning into descent into hell. He began to feel very troubled, heavy, and very anxious. He told them to stay behind. He went a stone throw away, collapsed on the ground, and began to cry bitterly. And even though before he went there, he told them to stay, to stay awake and be alert, and to pray and not to fall into temptation. If you ever heard as a Catholic... He uh, uh, give one hour before the Blessed Sacrament, before Eucharistic adoration, to pray for one hour. Well, this is how it all began. The apostles, of course, couldn't give it to him. And through the night, he went back and forth. And, of course, they pretty much couldn't, couldn't give him what he needed. His, and he went back and prayed and prayed so earnestly that his sweat became great drops of blood. And a symbol of his suffering. But also, here's what exactly what some of the saints say he suffered. He was suffering blasphemies. The blasphemies from priests. The blasphemies from disciples. The blasphemies of people who treat his body and blood as garbage. That's what he was going through. He was experiencing it. And... He was enduring it. So his passion began and his suffering and his entombment began in the garden. The temptation to sin and the fall of, man, of humanity began in the garden. He had, it had to go back again to the garden. And in the, that's exactly what happened. Some say the, the place he went, 
the Garden of Gethsemane. And the name Gethsemane means olive press. So you get it, he was being pressed. And so the drops of blood were sort of like a press, a pressing down upon him. He was enduring, he was already beginning to be crushed. He was already beginning to feel afflicted. He was already beginning to experience the, temp, uh, the suffering and the woes. Um, so anyway, we reached this point, the end of this one. And hopefully we'll, um, we'll come back. I'll try to come back a couple of days later with a new episode. And we'll get back to the pocket catechism. I feel that maybe because of what's happening with the Amazonian Synod, we need to talk more about Christ, his passion, and the atonement, and the Eucharist more. Because a lot of people, you know, the survey that came out a couple of weeks, uh, almost a month ago or more, said that many Catholics do not believe in the real presence. So, God bless, guys. We'll, uh, I'll be back soon.